Tucked away in the back of your New Testament is a little letter written by one of the sons of thunder. First John, I want to invite your attention this morning, First John chapter 4, and the paragraph, verses 7 through 11, and in a moment I want to do an exposition and application of these verses in First John. It is an honor for me today to introduce Kate Finley to you. The Lord brought us together in a very unusual way. Someday I'll tell you the story and let you know how it all came about. It's quite remarkable. Uh, her, Dr. Patterson, I would recommend that you want to be careful how you talk about her and to her. Uh, her mother is Japanese and her father is Irish American military. And uh, what Dr. Patterson was referring to when he said she is a fighter is she has a black belt in Taekwondo. And so you want to be careful what you say around her. I found that out I found, when I discovered that. I said, well, hey, let me ask you this. What happens if I say or do something that you don't like and that makes you angry? She said, why, Dr. Allen, I would just break your arm in two places and ask, did that hurt? <laughs> and so I pretty well got the message on that. I want to be very careful about that. But I am honored and delighted that she is here today. And in 10 days, we're getting married. I asked Kate how it was that uh, somebody like her, she's drop dead gorgeous and she's brilliant. And uh, I just, I asked her one day, I said, how is it that you've, you've never married? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, I haven't been looking, I've been waiting. I haven't been looking, I've been waiting. I've been waiting on God. What a wonderful, wonderful approach to life in that way. So I'm honored that she is here, honored to link my life with her, and we look forward to the days ahead. I I don't see Brent Ray. Dr. Ray, is he in here? He's overseas. Okay, well... We're getting married in 10 days, and 48 hours after we get married, I'm traveling to Kazakhstan to preach and teach for five days for GTI, and so I wanted to see if Brent Ray were here today so I could look him in the eye and tell him, you owe me, and so I'll be sure and let him know that when he gets back, so we'll be doing that, so you pray for us in that as well. All right, we turn our attention to the word of the Lord, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 and reading through verse 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When my oldest son, Jeremy, was about six years old, one day coming home from work in the spring, I stopped by the sporting goods store and I bought him his first baseball glove and a little youth baseball. I carried it home and I called Jeremy out into the front yard and I presented his new gifts to him. I gave him the glove, gave him the ball. I showed him how to wear the glove, how to hold it, how to hold the ball. And, and then I said, Jeremy, 
want to play catch? And he said, sure, dad. And so I said, all right, get out there about 10 feet. And he got out there and I said, all right, here it comes. And I tossed the ball to him. Well, you know what happened? It hit his glove, but it fell on the ground. He dropped it. And then he picked it up and he hurriedly threw it back to me, but it was an errant throw. It went off to the right and I had to chase it down. And so I picked it up and I said, all right, Jeremy, get ready. Here it comes. And he got his glove ready and underhandedly I tossed the ball. Well, it hit his glove and it fell on the ground again. And he picked it up and he threw it back to me. And this time it was an errant throw to the left and I had to retrieve it. And that was the first day that Jeremy and I played catch. I introduced him to the game of catch. I gave him his first glove. I gave him his first ball. It seems like we probably played catch a million times from that day until he graduated from high school. But you see, the reason I did that, that was one of the ways that I could express and demonstrate to Jeremy my love for him. You might be surprised to discover that in five chapters in this little letter, the word love occurs 46 times. John is telling us about God's love for us, our love for God, and then our love for one another. John traces the stream of love to its source. And when he does, he discovers God is Love. Love is the essence and the evidence of the Christian life. Love is not, not like other subjects. Other subjects, you learn them and then you put them into practice. But love can only be learned by practice. In that sense, it's more like measles than math, isn't it? You see, when the Bible talks about love, the word love, that beautiful word agape, is not a sentimental, squidgy, emotional, group hug kind of a word. Oh, no. No, when God talks about love in the Bible, God doesn't say, I love you if, or I love you because. No, God says, I love you anyhow. In spite of the fact that you are a sinner, in spite of the fact that you've rebelled against me, God says, I love you anyhow. Amazing, isn't it? You see, God loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. It's an amazing thing. And so John says, let me talk to you a little bit about love this morning. Notice at the front end and the back end, like bookends of this paragraph, you find this direct imperative, let us love one another. It occurs in verse 7. It occurs again, repeated in verse 11. It's the bookends of the passage. And John is going to tell us two major things we've got to know in order to understand how to fulfill this command, love one another. The first thing John tells us in verses 7 and 8 is that love is personified in God himself. Notice what he says. He says, beloved, let us love one another. There's the command. Now, here come the grounds and the reasons for the command. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The command is given, and there are immediately two reasons why we are to fulfill this command, love one another. The first is that love is from God. The ultimate source of love is God. Where does love come from? It does not originate with you or me. The, uh, the source of love is God himself. And when God demonstrates his love to us through Christ and when we come to know the Lord in personal salvation and his love is shed abroad in our hearts, then we are changed and can love him and love one another. It's the marvelous miracle that occurs in the Christian life. Love is an amazing thing. You see, love is 
not like feelings. They're related, but they are different. Feelings come to us. Love comes from us. Feelings are passive and receptive. Love is active and creative. Love is creative. God produces his love in us. And our, our love itself to God and to others is not coming from heredity, environment, good vibrations, digestion, weather, or anything else. No, our ability to love, the creative aspect of the love of God comes from God himself who has first loved us. The source of love is God. Like the light from the sun shines upon the earth, so the love of God shines upon us. And the sun shines on the earth, not because the earth is the earth, but because the sun is the sun. And so the source of love, it comes from God himself. We're commanded to love one another because love is from God. And then here comes the second reason. And everyone who loves like this, that doesn't mean everybody who loves pizza or loves their favorite dog or loves somebody or loves football or loves baseball. That doesn't, it's not talking about that. It means people who love in this kind of way, people who understand and demonstrate Christian love. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, love is the evidence of the Christian life. John writes about the new birth. He heard Jesus talk about that. He recorded it in his gospel, chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And what did Jesus tell old Nick at night? He told him, you must be born again. That terminology of the new birth is an apt metaphor for the Christian life, is it not? It's the new birth. You've got to be born again. And so now John continues that same thing. And he says, everyone who loves gives evidence that they have been born of God. They're in the family. They're in the family. When a newborn baby is there behind that glass in the nursery in the hospital, and all of the family comes and gathers around to look at the newborn child. What are they talking about? Are they talking about sports? No. Are they talking about the upcoming election? No. They're talking about how the child gives evidence that they're in the family by all of the physical characteristics of the child. And so someone says, oh, look, she has her mother's eyes. And someone else says, oh, look, he has his father's hair. Someone says, oh, look, she has grandmother's cheeks. Somebody else says, oh, look, he has Papa's nose. And so they're all looking at the child and the characteristics of the child give evidence that that child is a member of this family. So it is in the Christian life, like father, like sons and daughters. And so John says, the one who loves, everyone who loves gives evidence they've been born of God. You're in the family. And he says, and you give evidence that you know God. There are two primary words for knowledge in the Greek New Testament. There is, of course, book learning knowledge, knowledge of facts, and that's a word, but that's not the word that's used here. This is the word that means knowledge by personal experience and personal relationship. We don't just know about God. We don't just know facts about God. We know him personally through Christ. Everyone who loves like this gives evidence they've been born of God and they know God. Wonderful, isn't it? How creative God's love is. And when it enters our life, it changes our life and causes us to love him and love one another. But then John says, let's talk about the flip side. The positive is everyone who loves like this has been born of God and knows God. But in verse eight, John says, look at the negative. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Hey, if you have a zero batting average in the love league, 
If you are always striking out in the love league, you don't have a clue who God is. John says blatantly, point blank, in your face, the one who does not love does not know God. Why? Then he draws this portion to a close with this little short, terse, powerful statement. God is love. God as to his nature is love. God not only demonstrates love, it's not only an attribute of God, it is a part of his nature. God as to his nature is love. And because he is love, it is his nature to demonstrate and to give that love to every human being on the planet. Just like the sun shines on the earth, so the love of God shines upon every human being. God loves everybody. The scripture has demonstrated very clearly. God is love. It's his nature to love. You know, Human love and God's love are oftentimes quite different. Human love is oftentimes response love, is it not? Oh, I I love him because he's handsome. Well, I love her because she's beautiful. Well, I love him because she's intelligent. I love him because he's intelligent. I love her because she's rich. And so all of this I love if or I love because, oftentimes human love is drawn out by, from someone else to us where they, we see them and we're drawn to them and that draws out our love. That's not how it works with God. God doesn't look at you and say, oh my, how wonderful she is. Oh, how great he is. How marvelous Dr. Patterson is. I think I'll love him. No, God loves us in spite of who we are. God loves us in spite of the fact that we are sinners. God loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. That's the nature of God. God is love. It is his nature to love. And the wonder of it all is that God would create a universe and then create human beings And then those human beings rebel against the very God who made them. And yet God continued to love them and in fact provide a plan of salvation for them. And that's exactly what happens in verses 9 and 10. So not only do we see that the love of God, God's love, love is personified in God himself. And that's the reasons why we are to love one another. But also in verses 9 and 10, love is proven. And that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Look at it carefully, verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In these two verses, the greatness of, of the love of God is demonstrated in five statements that John makes. Number one, God sent. Do you see it? God sent. Stop right there. Time out. In human action, in human intercourse, in human relationships, it is proper protocol for the offender to seek reconciliation and forgiveness with the offended from the offended party. If in my haste to get out of the building today, if I just rush by Dr. Patterson, I step on his toe, I elbow him as I'm going out. After I get three or four steps away, does Dr. Patterson turn to me and say, oh, David, I'm sorry. No, he's the offended party. I'm the offender. It is incumbent on me 
to come to him and say, Dr. Patterson, I am so sorry. I don't know why I did that. I stepped on your toe. I bumped into you. I elbowed you on my way out. I'm not normally that rude. I am so sorry. Would you forgive me? And I have no doubt because I know him to be the Christian man that he is that he would indeed uh, forgive me. He'd pay me back later, but he would forgive me for doing it. That's how it works in human relations. The offender seeks reconciliation with the offended party. But that's not how it works in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that never in human history has there ever been a group of human beings who came together and said, you know what, we've offended a holy God. We we better get a group of us and go to his throne and sue for peace and reconciliation. Have you noticed that never in human history does that ever happen? There's a reason for that. It's called total depravity. But you see, though we do not seek reconciliation, we're the offenders. We ought to do so. We ought to be seeking reconciliation. But God doesn't wait on us to come to him out of his love. He comes to us. He seeks reconciliation with us and he loves us in spite of our rebellion and he provides a way of salvation and he he plans it and then he provides it and then he procures it when we meet his condition of salvation, which is repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so God sent. Notice whom God sent. We are told that God sent his only begotten son into the world. A son presupposes a father. And so God the Father sends the son, the second member of the Trinity. Notice that when God got ready to solve the sin problem, he didn't send an angel. He didn't send Moses or Abraham or Isaiah. Nor did he send Peter, Paul, or John, one of the apostles. No, he sent his son. And not only that, he sent his only begotten son. A very important word in your Bible. Monogenes in Greek. It's one word. It's a compound word. Now, you know this word, and you know the the root behind this word. It's made up of two words. Mono, which means what? One or only. And genes, G-E-N-E-S which is the Greek word and root word for birth. And so one kind of birth and genes, G-E-N-E-S, we brought over into our English language in the word genes. And genes, not as in Calvin Klein or Levi or skinny, but genes as in DNA. We use that word. You have genes and DNA. And so by analogy, if you think about it, who is Jesus? He is God's one gene kind of a son. There is no other one like him. God calls the children of Israel his sons in the Old Testament. The angels are called the sons of God in the Old Testament. We are called the sons of God, John Gospel chapter 1 verse 12, when we are saved. But there's one sense in which Jesus is God's monogenes. He is his only begotten, his one of a kind, altogether unique son and that's whom God sent for your salvation. You see, your sin was so bad. My sin was so bad that it took the son of the living God to provide for it. And so whom did God send? He sent his only begotten son. 
God sent the Son, but Jesus came of his own will. The Father did not lay on the cross, on the cross, on the Son, a cross that he was reluctant to bear. Nor did the Son extract from the Father a love he was reluctant to bestow. Oh, no, in perfect Trinitarian harmony, God the Father and God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit worked together to bring about our salvation. And God, when he got ready to provide for the sin problem, he sends his monogenes, his only begotten Son. You see, as Anselm said, man should make the sacrifice but he can't because he's the sinner. And only God could do it. And therefore, Jesus, the God-man, takes the should and the could, and he weds them together on the cross. And he provides an atonement for the sins of the entire world. And so what does John say? He says that we know that God loves us. We know this love is so great because God sent his only begotten son into the world. There's a third description of the greatness of this love. Notice that we are told the purpose of this sending is so that, verse 9, we might live through him. You don't have eternal life unless you have Christ. You don't have salvation unless you have Jesus. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Salvation and eternal life is given only through Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And only until God comes through Christ and provides an atonement are we able to be freed from our sin as we sang in that beautiful hymn, Charles Wesley's hymn this morning, so that we might live through him. And then the fourth greatness of this love, look at it in the beginning of verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. You see, it's not that you waked up one day and decided to love God, no, No, he loved you first, and the ability you have to love him and others is because he first graced you with his love. The source of that love is God. He loved us first. But then, number five, the greatness of this love is demonstrated by its cost. Notice what John says in the latter part of verse 10. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. There's a $5 stained glass word in the Bible. Propitiation. What in the world does that word mean? Propitiation. Nobody uses that word today. Propitiation. I bet no one after chapel, you're running late to your next class, and you've got poor old mean Dr. Yarnell in your next class, and you're running late. You know how bad he is and how mean he is to people that come late to his class. And so you're wringing your hands as you run to class, and you turn to your friend, and you say, we better figure out a way to make propitiation to Dr. Yarnell today. No, nobody talks like that. Propitiation. What is that, a disease? Propitiation. What hockey team does he play for? We don't know what propitiation means, but seven times does that word appear in your Greek New Testament translated propitiation, and it is a very crucial word to understand for the atonement. Let me unpack it for you this morning. The word propitiation, in that word, there are six concepts. There are six words that you need to understand. God's holiness, God's wrath, God's justice, God's mercy, God's love, 
and his grace. All six are wrapped up in that word. First, God's holiness. Hey, God is holy and you're not. Well, there's strike one. God's holy and I'm not. My sin is an affront to a holy God. He is holy and I'm not. I'm already in trouble. Number two, wrapped up in this word is the word wrath. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is continually being poured out, present tense in the Greek text, continually being poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God is angry with sin and sinners before they are saved. You say, whoa, wait a minute. You just got through telling us you've spent 22 minutes telling us that God loves us. Yes. Well, now you're telling me that before I was saved, that God's wrath is poured out on me. Yes. Well, wait a minute, David. That, how can you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Those are contradictory. Well, obviously, you've never been married. Can I get a witness from the men who are here today? Obviously, you've never been married. If your wife can love you and yet be angry with you at the same time, don't you think God can do that? And so because of our sin and our unregenerate state, the wrath of God abides upon us. And so there's strike number two. Not only is God holy and I'm not and I've rebelled against his holiness, but his wrath is on me. Number three, justice. See, God's a God of justice. Sin's got to be paid for. There is a moral universe that God governs and God's justice must be done. By the way, be careful when you say, I want justice. You better be careful. Because if you got justice, you'd be in hell. So be careful about saying, I want justice. You know, sin is such a terrible thing. And sometimes people come to me, I hear them, and they'll say, you know, why does God get so bent out of shape about sin? Well, let me answer that question. Why doesn't God just wave his magic wand and just forgive everybody of their sin? Let me answer that question with a question. Why doesn't the state of Colorado just wave their magic wand over James Holmes, who three summers ago went into that theater in Aurora, Colorado, and murdered 12 people and wounded 56 others? Why doesn't the state of Colorado just wave their magic wand and say, it's all right, we we forgive you? I mean, after all, he probably was having a bad day, don't you think? A bad day. Everybody has a bad day. Why does God get so bent out of shape about sin? Why didn't he just wave his magic wand? That's because God as holy, as a holy God is a God who is just. And to even ask why the state of Colorado doesn't just forgive James Holmes for his egregious sin, murdering 12 people, wounding 56 others. To even ask that question is to cause the hair on the back of your head to rise and you say, no, David, if they were to do that, it would be an egregious breach of justice. And you would be absolutely right. How you take that and you multiply that into near infinity. And you understand that today there are more than 7 billion people on this planet, most of whom are unsaved, and recognize that every day, 24-7, that the sins of over 7 billion people on this planet in one rushing, roaring, filthy, malodorous flood empty themselves before the throne of a holy God and then ask yourself, why doesn't God wave his magic wand and forgive us of our sin? And maybe you'll begin to understand. Justice 
sin will be paid for. Well, David, that's strike three. I'm out of here. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Time out. There are three more words wrapped up in this word propitiation. We're unpacking the word propitiation. The fourth word is the word mercy. Have you not read in the Old Testament as well as the New that God is a God of mercy? Are you not aware that God is a God of mercy? Have you not read 2 Peter 3, 9 and other verses like this? God is not willing that any should perish, but desires all to come to repentance. God desires the salvation of every human being on this planet, period. God is a God of mercy. In the tabernacle and later in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and on top, the golden slab called the mercy seat. And when the blood was sprinkled on the day of atonement, the sins of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, were rolled down forward, rolled forward one more year. They were covered. They were cleansed. They were forgiven. God is a God of mercy. And then God is a God of love. That's the whole point of this passage and all of the New Testament, the love of God. God's love is demonstrated in the cost of Christ coming and dying on the cross. And there on the cross is the love of God demonstrated in a way you'll never see it demonstrated any greater or any better in any other capacity than what you see on the cross of Christ. There's the love of God for you and me and for all of humanity demonstrated in Christ dying for the sins of the world. And then is the word grace. Oh, Justice, I get what I deserve. Mercy, I don't get all I deserve. Grace, I get from God through his atonement that which I don't deserve. I receive forgiveness and cleansing and salvation and eternal life and my name written in heaven. All of that is wrapped up in this word propitiation. Here's how it works. Jesus comes to the cross and he says to me, David, step aside, boy. I'm going to take your place. And he dies a penal substitutionary death on a cross in my place. And in doing so, he demonstrates the holiness of God because when he died, there was no sin in him. He was absolutely sinless. He was dying for other people's sins. And there the wrath of God is poured out on Christ on the cross. And none can understand it when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet God allowed the sins of the entire world to be placed upon Christ when he died on the cross. And there the wrath of God is demonstrated against sin. And then the justice of God. God's law is satisfied when Jesus dies on the cross. He perfectly satisfies the holy law of God, fulfills it to the nth degree, and his justice is satisfied when he dies on the cross for the sins of all. And there on that cross is God's mercy demonstrated. There on that cross is his love for you and me and for the world demonstrated. And there on that cross and because of the benefits of that cross is God's grace offered to all who will meet his condition of salvation, which is repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the word propitiation. Ty Cobb, one of the greatest names in baseball history. A 367 lifetime batting average. 4,191 hits, 892 stolen bases, 12, count them in, 12 batting titles, nine consecutively. <laughs> Can you believe it? That will never be done again in the history of the universe. 
But Ty Cobb was the meanest and most hated man in baseball. In his quest for victory, he would insult, injure, and humiliate other players in order to win. He would sit in front of the dugout before a game and sharpen his metal cleats to remind the shortstops, the shortstop and the second baseman of the opposing team that when he comes sliding into second base, it'll be feet first. His own teammates hated him. In one season, at the end of the season, there was a very tight race for the batting title. His own teammates hated him so much, they rooted for the other guy against their own teammate. He was married three times. In every marriage, he verbally and physically abused his wife. He was a racist. He would hurl racial epithets at people of color. If you look up the phrase total depravity in a dictionary, you might see Ty Cobb's picture there shortly before his death. A Presbyterian preacher by the name of John Richardson came to see Ty Cobb, knocked on the door. When Cobb saw it was a preacher, he cursed him. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to no preacher, Cobb said. But two days later, John Richardson returned, and this time... Cobb let him in, and John Richardson told Ty Cobb of the love of God for him and how Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the likes of the Georgia peach, Ty Cobb. And tears welled up in his eyes and rolled down his cheeks. As for the first time in his life under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Ty Cobb came to understand that sorry as he was, God loved him. And what you may not know is shortly before his death, about two weeks before his death, Ty Cobb professed his faith in Jesus Christ. And two days before his death, he told John Richardson, I feel the strong arms of God underneath me. Folks, you cannot sin yourself beyond the love of God. You can't do it. I don't care how evil you are, how bad you've been, how dark your sin is. You can't sin yourself beyond the love of God. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he loves you right now. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he loves you right now. Salvation is a salvation proven because God sent his son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin. But now, that's not the end of the story. John says, oh, there's an 11th verse. And don't forget what I wrote in verse 7. And so now in verse 11, after demonstrating and telling us that, the, that love is personified in God himself, and now love is proven in God sending Christ to pay the penalty for our sin, now it comes time for love to be practiced in your life and mine. So what does he say in verse 11, beloved? If God so loved us, the if means sense, because God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, John, having explained how much God loves you in spite of your sinfulness, every excuse is washed away for not loving others. 
all others, everybody, friends and enemies, folks in church, folks outside of the church, saved people, unsaved people, they're all included. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought. I want you to look at that word, so loved. If God in this way, in this unique fashion, with this cost, demonstrated his love like John talked about in verse 10, then we also must. And look at that little word ought in your English Bible. It's a tiny word, three letters in the Greek New Testament. It is a word of moral necessity. It is, not a, it is an obligation. It is an obligation, a divine duty to love one another. No option. It's not optional. It's obligatory. If God so loved us, we must, God said. Love one another. Hey, if the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, maybe the greatest sin is not to do it. Oh, but David, I, are you telling me I, that I have to love those people of a different color? Yes, I'm telling you that. That's what God is saying. You mean people of a different race? I'm supposed to love it? Yes. You mean those people of a different religion, even those that want to kill me? Yes. You mean those people with a catty tongue who've gossiped about me in church and I don't want to sit on the same side of the building, they're over here, I'm going to be over there? Yes. You mean I'm supposed to love all of those people and unsaved people alike? Yes, 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 yes. If God so loved us, we ought, we must It is a moral necessity that we love one another. The greatest love you can show to someone who is not a Christian is to tell them about Jesus. The greatest exhibit, exhibition of love for those who don't know Christ is to tell them about Jesus. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said in his sermon on this very passage. Go forth at once and try to make reconciliation between every man and God. Let that be your object. Christ has become man's reconciliation, and we are to try and bring this reconciliation near to every poor sinner that comes in our way. We are to tell him that God in Christ is reconciled. God is now able to deal on gospel terms with the whole human race. We need never think that we shall meet with men to whom God will not consent to be reconciled. Such is the love of God. You want to show that love? Then go tell somebody who doesn't know the love of God about the love of God through Christ Jesus. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If I were to ask every man in this room to name their top five baseball movies on one hand, every man in this room would name the movie Field of Dreams. Many would place it number one on their list. Many of you ladies would as well. Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner plays the role of Ray Kinsella. He's an Iowa farmer. He's married to his college sweetheart, Annie, and they've got a little girl about nine years old, named Karen. But times are tough, and they're about to lose their farm. And so one day, out in the middle of the field, Ray hears a voice. The voice says, if you build it, he will come. And he cannot figure out, what in the world does that mean? And in other venues, he hears the voice lying on his bed at night. He hears the whisper, if you build it, he will come. 
riding in his truck to town to get supplies. He hears it again. If you build it, he will come. Finally, Ray determines that the voice is telling him to build a baseball field on his farm. And so what does he do? He plows under his corn, his crop, and he builds a baseball field. And while he's building it, townspeople think he's crazy. They come bring lawn chairs and drink iced tea and Pepsi and watch him plow under his crop and build a baseball field. Look at crazy Ray. And the field is built and the lights are there. And day and night, night and day, weeks elapse, months elapse, and nothing happens. Ray will come out and look. The field is empty. But one afternoon, Ray looked out, and there was a lone baseball player on his field. Would you believe it? It was the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson, the famous White Sox player of the 1919 White Sox. Well, there's the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson. And Shoeless Joe thanks Ray for the field and says, Do you mind if I bring some of my teammates? Well, sure, go right ahead. The next day, the field is full of former 1919 Chicago White Sox. And then the next day, there are other baseball players, famous baseball players of the past, past, and they are playing a scrimmage game on Ray's field. It's unbelievable. Then as the movie plot winds to a conclusion, late one afternoon after the scrimmage game is over, And the players, the ghosts are going back to disappear into the corn wherever they go when they disappear into the outfield corn. And Shoeless Joe Jackson, played by Ray Liotta, walks up to Ray. And he says, if you build it, he will come. And then he turns and looks at the catcher. And Ray turns, and as the catcher, the camera pans to the catcher, and he's removing his gear. And when he turns around, to Ray's amazement, it's his own father. But it's his father when his father was a young man before he was ever married, before Ray was even a twinkle in his eye. And you see, as the movie plot unfolds, we learn that when Ray was 17 years old, he said ugly things to his father. He packed his bags and he moved away and he never spoke to his father again. Years elapsed and his father died. And the guilt of how Ray had treated his father haunted him. And now there's his dad. John Kinsella walks up to Ray. And he says, I want to thank you folks for building this field. And Ray says, you're welcome. And they converse for a moment. And though nothing is said, they both understand. And then John says, well, I guess I better go. And he turns to walk across the infield to the outfield to disappear into the corn. And as he's walking away, the camera comes in tight on Kevin Costner's face and you see the emotion in his eyes and his tears his eyes are welling up with tears and then comes the most famous line in that movie when he calls out dad want to play catch and his father stops and turns around and says yes Yes, I would like that very much. And so Ray dons a glove and gets a ball and his father, and they're on the infield. They're back and forth playing catch and the lights are on and the sun is westering in the sky. And the movie draws to a close. But there's just one thing about it. Field of Dreams got it exactly backwards. Because you see, in Field of Dreams, it's the wayward son who comes to the father and says, Dad, want to play catch? 
It's the Father who comes to all of the wayward sons and daughters and says, want to play catch? Want to play catch? Want to play catch? And if you think about your life and your love like a baseball, throw it back to the divine pitcher who pitched it to you in the first place and the game continues. Hold it and the game is over. Did you hear that? Did did you hear that? I hear it, don't you? That voice, don't you hear it? That heavenly voice. Want to play catch? Want to play catch? Want to play catch? God so loved us that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And all God's people said,